We need to work together. Politicians, they need to put their position aside. Come together as a united front. Julius Malema, Cyril Ramaphosa, Musmaimane, let's hold hands together, walk in the street of Johannesburg and bring the citizens together. This is Expanding Horizons. Candid conversations, passionate people, important issues. Produced by the Jesuit Institute, South Africa. Jean Boisset is primarily a husband and the father of four children. Originally from the DRC, he is a Pan-Africanist, a motivational speaker and a humanist. Jean has a degree in education and over 35 years experience teaching at several high schools and universities. And he's also a passionate human rights defender. My name is Russell Pollitt and this is Expanding Horizons. Jean, thank you very much for coming and talking to us. Tell us a little bit about yourself, where you're from, where you grew up, your family and maybe some of your interests or your hobbies. Thanks, Russell. My name is Jean Boissat, but I must say this is my adopted name. I'm from the Democratic Republic of the Congo, which in the 1960s went into what we called the rebellion or the Congo debacle, which was followed by the assassination of Patrice Emery Lumumba. And thereafter, the assassination of all the Lumumba's followers, which includes my biological parents who died eventually in 1964. Mm. And while my mom gave birth to me, she gave me the name of Disumba Mavu. That was a last gap, and I remained in the field at the side of the river. So Gisumba Mavu in my vernacular language means he who bought the earth, which I could interpret a child of the soil, because mm. eventually during that time I was fed with the soil from the river so that we could maintain. And I survived in the 1960s. And after five years, I went overseas in France, brought up by Catholic, nuns, priests, Jesuits. Uh, I can say so many of them, Josephites. And my aunt, who was a nun, never told me that I was an orphan. She brought me up as her own child until the age of 16. Because mm. I was growing up as an adolescent, she sent me back to Congo, and I fell in love with my country, the Democratic Republic of the Congo. So this is me in a nutshell. Wow, that's a remarkable story. How did you find yourself in South Africa? Well, I found myself in South Africa as a follow-up of the incidents that were happening in the Democratic Republic of the Congo in the 90s. Mm -hmm. uh, we must understand that when South Africa started getting into the mode for its own liberation, but 1997, Congo had also a transitional change with uh, the removal of uh, Joseph Mobutu, who was conceived as a despot of the Congolese mm. people or Zairean at that time. So in 1997, we had a change in uh, the Congo. Laurent Désiré Kabila came into power. And I must say that despite the fact that people always contest uh, his way of ruling the country, the Congolese people had hope because it could provide food for the Congolese uh, citizens. Uh, and uh, we hope that uh, everything would be fine. But nevertheless, after a while, those who helped him get into power, mainly the Rwandan people, the Ugandan, and then 10 other countries that were involved in what is being called the Africa War, mm. they actually gave a veto to uh, Laurent Desiree Kabila, and therefore everything 
started, the debacle of the Congo started, mm. and we went into war until today. So the 2nd August 1998, at 1403 minutes and 3 seconds, my house, which was at the outskirts of the Congolese airport, was bombed, and the bomb went into my bedroom. I was not there because I used to work with the media, CNN, BBC, and the Times magazine as an interpreter and a translator. And just when I came back, I had lost everything. Hmm. But besides that, I used to be a human rights activist. Coming back from overseas, I saw the injustices that were prevailing in my country from back in 1982. So I started challenging not only the government, but as well as the people in my country. Let's say the headmaster or a teacher would normally be embarrassing a student. I would stand and say, this is not right, because I had that free-thinking mind from overseas. Mm. So it got me into trouble, and they usually call me a troublemaker. Even at university, they used to call me a red question when I had to challenge the authorities. Mm. So I, in 2003, eventually, I got my passport, which was confiscated in 1982 when Honoré and the security service of Mobutu were taking all these uh, passports in their offices, and I got a new passport. And I chose to come in South Africa because I thought that South Africa symbolized hope. Mm. And that hope that I was following, the dream of hope to come, not necessarily going back overseas because today everybody want to go overseas because they think it's greener pasture. But I had lived overseas. But I thought, as an educator, I could come here and contribute to the development of this wonderful country. I was amazed, I must tell you, when you land at uh, Oatambo Airport, it's far better than uh, Zaventem in Belgium. <laughs> and you understand yourself, am I really in Africa mm. or I am in another country overseas? So I fell in love with South Africa. It isn't easy as a migrant here because despite being a bachelor in education, it wasn't easy for me to find a job. Mm. I started with old little jobs, painting houses in Houghton, packaging at the airport in the cold and putting those packages into a flight, a cargo flight. And you earn 350 rand per night and you survive with that because at the end you need to pay your room. And also when I was reflecting lately on what we call the impact of migration in any given country, mm. this is statistics of Africa. It's none of this uh, misinformation and disinformation that is going on that there are 11 million foreigners or migrants in South Africa. And that's where the language of the politicians should change because there are only 2.1 million foreigners in South Africa, mm. both those that are illegal and documented, and those that are legal. Mm. And this is South, uh, Statistics of Africa, mm. which I was attending a conference lately because one of the things that I do, I attend several conferences to understand the world. And in my field as an interpreter, sometimes I'm also being hired to go into conferences and understand more because I need to explain to people what are in the document. So... I understand that it's a plight for any African to live in a foreign country. But again, I also encourage migrant people to respect the law of the country that is hosting us because we fled in our country. And that's where I'm going to bring my reflection with 
everything that is going into social media. We fled in our countries sometimes because even in our country, there is intolerance, lack of respect of human rights. I'm speaking about my country, the Congo, but I can speak about any other African country mm. where you've got war in the eastern side of the Congo where 450,000 women have been raped for the past 22 years on a monthly basis. We have 2.5 million charged soldiers and miners. We have 1.2 or 6 million of those that were killed. These are statistics that were in the mapping reports at the UN, but nothing has been done. That's why the Congolese people are flocking in uh, South Africa, because we, and the opposite, we've got those mining companies that are in the Congo that are mainly South African companies, international companies. I can name just one, Anglo Gold Ashanti and Round Gold that partner together to create what we call Kibali Gold. We have recently heard that there are 9,000 South Africans just in a small city called Kolwezi where you have rush mining. So it's a thing that we are you give and you receive. Mm. And it is important that we get the understanding together as communities, as Africans, as one society to live and to build bridges of understanding. I want to go back to something you said. You said you came to South Africa because you thought there was hope. In the last couple of months, in fact, in the last number of years in South Africa, it seems for many people their hope has been squashed, has been killed by the way that local people here have reacted to your presence and your work. Have you changed your mind? I mean, do you still have that hope? Well, I've got a strange saying in my life, and I think that's what made me survive. The minute you lose hope, the minute you lose love, the minute you lose joy, then you are a dead person. So as long as I'm alive, as long as any individual in this world is alive, he needs to keep the candle of hope burning. So it hasn't ended. I still hope that as Africans, as human beings, we'll get back to our senses and stop this madness. And I may tell you that as thinkers, what we do, two weeks or three weeks back, I've got the evidence with me here that I will share with you. We wrote a letter to the ambassador of the Congo, who is actually the dean of the ambassadors in South Africa, to make him aware of what is being cooked in the social media so that he could prevent. He has the voice to speak to the South African authorities, mm. but he has not been proactive. This letter was sent to him. I went personally with another colleague of mine who is a human rights activist. We dropped there. We've got his signature of his office, but nothing has been done. They just sit in their offices and they're doing nothing. So the politicians they have a great role to play. The church has got a great role to play. Education has got a great role to play mm. to bring hope and joy in the heart of every single human person. Let's go back there. Do you think xenophobia is a political problem? Do you think xenophobia is an economic problem? Do you think xenophobia is a cultural problem? You have been on the receiving end of xenophobia. How do you analyze it from your perspective? From my own perspective, I would say that we call xenophobia. First of all, we need to define what is xenophobia. Mm. It's the fear 
of the foreigners. Mm. Coming from its etymology from Greek. Mm. But I would say it is the fear of the unknown. That's how I understand it. So it's both an aspect of cultural, it's both an aspect of economics, it's both an aspect of social bias that have been going on, not just necessarily now. We can even go into colonization, we can go into slavery. That's five centuries. And I always say that. For instance, in South Africa, the TRC missed something. It was TRC Truth and Reconciliation Commission, but the reparation, the second R, was not there. So the wounds are still fresh because there's the economic issues that should have been tackled during that commission. And that's where the hurt is because people feel prejudiced. And if I were to advise something or to suggest as a thinker, I would say that we need a new TRC in South Africa to bring everybody together so that we would compensate with the art that was missing and see where the pool and give factor could interact so that we bring understanding love. Because as Africans, as a human being, love is the key solution for our humanity to live together for a better life for all. Also, in terms of the economy and uh, finances, I think those who acquired wealth yesterday, whether they're white, whether they're black, whether they're Indians, they should give back to their community. And that's where we are failing at the same time. You have one or two persons that have amassed a lot of wealth and they are keeping it without distributing to those that are missing. We know it's capital words, but at the same time, we need to have this prodigality to bring a better life for every human being. One of the things that's often said here in South Africa is that foreign African nationals are treated much worse than, say, people from the Western world, Europe or the United States. Do you agree with that? And what do you think is behind that? Why is it that somehow the harshness or the anger is taken out on foreign African nationals? Well, I would not agree with it, nor disagree with it, but I think it's misconception of the world. And I'm saying this primarily because I lived overseas as a child, and uh, I saw how I was treated there. In the city where I grew up, I was the only child in my school of 1,000 students who were white, and I was welcomed. I would say that Western civilization have created together what they call the solidarity which we as Africans, we claim on the tip of our lips, but we don't leave it. As African, the tendency is to divide one another from tribal point of view. And I was reflecting with uh, a sister two or three days ago about what we call the crab mentality. That's little animal. If we put it in a cup here, I always ask people, how long do you think that a crab will come out from uh, a cup? People would say three minutes, five minutes. But in actual fact, we will spend even an eternity to see the crab coming out because it has got the syndrome of pulling me down. And that's how our African society has been going on for the past two centuries, and I would say since independences between inverted comma, because I don't believe into the independences so far, because it means that we have had freedom, yet freedom without 
economics doesn't work, and that's where we are today with xenophobia. So in a nutshell, our villages, our families are experiencing what we call the crab mentality of pulling down, being jealous of one another instead of promoting one another and pushing one another up so that we can pave the way to build a society that is fair, just, and uh, distributive for one another. You mentioned it earlier. Very often, especially in this country, I can't speak for other places, there is a certain political rhetoric that seeks to divide. For example, the mayor of Johannesburg saying that the inner city is infested with foreigners. What role do you think politicians have to play? And you said you spoke, for example, to the dean of the diplomatic corps who happens to be the ambassador of the Congo. What role do politicians have to play if we are going to have some hope that this issue will be resolved? How much is their responsibility and what should they do? The first responsibility uh, for the politician is, first of all, don't make promises that you can't keep. I do believe as an educator that it is important that when you educate the children, you tell them that one plus one equals two. This is what I have and this is what I'm going to offer. And politicians, they don't do that. They promise mountain marvels while they can't do that. The situation, the economic situation of this country is in such a disarray that we need together to pull our sleeves and work together, bring the society to work. So politicians, when these events have occurred, it's not to scapegoat. They need to put their position, I say, within the ANC aside. Their division must be put aside. The DMS do the same. The EFF must do the same, come together as a united front. Julius Malema, Cyril Ramaphosa, Mus Maimane, the mayor, the premier, let's hold hands together, walk in the street of Johannesburg. Let's show unity and bring the citizens together. And they walk together as a one body and they speak to the population. They will listen. We can't be failing the society. We have noticed the young girl who has lost her lives. But how many more are losing their lives that are not accounted for? The foreigners that have been losing their lives, are they counted by the media? So we speak about five or six that are South African, and I think that's where society is missing the point. As I speak with you right now, we have news from the Congo that. The citizens of the Congo, the citizens of Nigeria, the citizens of uh, many other countries are retaliating. But is that the response? Violence through violence. I would think that a diplomatic way would be a better solution to resolve this issue of violence. In the same way when Zambia said, okay, you're calling us for a friendly game. No more friendly game because this is the violence. At least at this time, we can together, okay, can we play and this friendly game make us reconcile. But no, not vandalizing the economy because it will bring the country down. When they condemn the Congolese or the migrants that they are taking jobs, no, they are not taking jobs. Instead, they are creating their own job because they have learned true resilience. And I think this is the way to go. We work so hard to have the little means to feed our families and to live in a good condition. You said as well the church has a role to play. You spoke about the political establishment, economic establishment, the church. 
In your opinion, is the church doing enough and what should the church be doing? Well, the church is playing its part and I was reflecting on this when I was coming because Jesus himself was a refugee at some point. And the Bible, if I may refer to the Bible, I don't know the verses, they say that you must care about the migrant. You must share your love. You must share with them. So the church, and I know for the Catholic, they have all these uh, auspices here and there. They're doing their part. But I think it is in terms of preaching the correct uh, word because the word now, the gospel, I may say not the word, the gospel now in many churches has become something that is being like commerce. They are trading the gospel instead of preaching the gospel of love. And that's where I would recommend that the church plays its role. For instance, now with these xenophobic attacks, that's where the church may find those venues that are vacant or empty and accommodate those who have lost everything. And many churches are not doing it. The Catholic are doing it. The Methodists are doing it. But the other churches, as I say, they are more money-making machines rather than that generosity, that loves, that symbolize the heart of God. As someone who has lived through what's happened in this country in the last couple of weeks, in the last months in fact, who has connections within the migrant community in the city of Johannesburg, what are people saying and feeling at this time? Well, people are distressed. People are, have lost hope in actual fact. And I would say there's fear, a lot of fear in the people that are vulnerable because these people are really vulnerable. Some of them we don't understand. They go to home affairs and there's an issue that we need to tackle. For years and years you've been in this country, 16 years you go to home affairs and you don't get a refugee status. You're still an asylum seeker for 16 years. So the politicians have failed. But when they arrest you in the street, they say you are illegal, you are undocumented. How can somebody who's been going to home affairs for 16 years, it hasn't been uh, recognized, be undocumented or illegal? If you're an asylum seeker, you're not allowed to work? In the paper, it says an asylum seeker, according to Section 22, is allowed to work and study. Okay. But in reality, it's mm. not happening. Okay. So for me, it's fear mainly today. But also, and I would uh, discourage people to scapegoat the South African people. One of the things that I always say, it is important that those politicians, they educate their citizens for what they went through during apartheid time because they were also in other countries. They need to tell those little stories because it's little streams that make the big ocean. And if they are not telling the story, I was communicating with Derek Anakom the other day when he was in Zimbabwe. He had a Ghanaian passport. Can you imagine somebody who was living in Zimbabwe, but he had a Ghanaian passport, the solidarity of the African people. Mandela himself, the late Mandela, was in Ethiopia, and he had also an Ethiopian passport. 
and he was trained by Haile Selassie, the emperor himself. Mobutu, and this is what people don't know, Mobutu, in 1973, October, had a speech at the UN headquarters saying that he will not let South Africa until apartheid regime is over. And Mobutu, again, though people might despise him, they said that he was uh, with Pig Bota, he was supporting Bota, but instead he was taking the money from Bota and he was funding the Mkotom Sizwe in Zambia. And His Excellency Kenneth Kaunda is still alive. He used to say Zambia didn't have the money. It was Mobutu was giving the money to the Mkotom Sizwe in Zambia. Today, what are we going to give back? Mama Africa and Yuma Sikela, the musicians, they were in the Congo uh, before Mama Africa went to Guinea. So we supported apartheid uh, in such a way that we didn't want apartheid to prevail in Africa. And as I always say, I asked musician Ot Six Mabuse and uh, Mama Yvonne Shaka Shaka, this is the time where the artists must come together and sing in the same way Michael Jackson sang for Ethiopia in the 1980s. We need a song of unity to unite Africans. And this is a time that song must bring love together for Africans. People on the continent, you point out, hosted South Africans, especially during the dark days of apartheid. And many people in the current government also found themselves as refugees, hiding, sometimes even planning maybe the bringing down of the apartheid government. Some accuse them of forgetting that they were hosted by these other African nations, and therefore they're not really interested in the plight of people here today. They've forgotten history. What would you say about that? I would say it's mainly they're suffering from amnesia. And this amnesia is voluntary because they think that uh, South Africa is an insular country. Yet South Africa is still part of Africa. And I always object about what they are saying that we need the United States of Africa. We can't create the United States of Africa only for goods and not for humans. We can't create the United States of Africa if we have not reconciled with ourselves. So those veterans that were in exile, and I'm going to repeat this, they need to start rewriting the history. Those little stories when they were in any country where they were given water, they were given a shelter, so that it will go into the psyche of the current generation that might not have gone elsewhere in this planet. For instance, let's say the youth of 1994, they don't know what is apartheid. The youth of 2000, they don't know what is apartheid. So for them, what they are faced with is the crisis, the economic crisis. They don't see hope beyond the fact that I've got my metric, I'm a teacher. So beyond this metric, this paper, where do I go? And that's where I think politician needs to tell the story. There's a school in Tanzania, which they call Solomon Mathlangu. But this Solomon Mathlangu was there to help the migrants and their children of South Africa to be able to be educated. Hmm. But are the migrants that are in South Africa able to study? No. And these are other issues that we need to tackle. There's a school that we call 3 to 6 in South Africa, which is also by a Catholic school. But those students are only studying for three hours, and I would say two hours or one hour and a half, 
it's a little candle of hope, but the majority are not going to school. So we are creating a time bomb in the next 20 or 30 years because those children that were not able to study, what are they going to say? They are hopeless tomorrow and they are actually becoming victims of a society that has failed them. So the politicians that were in exile, they need to come also together, share the story so that we move forward and we bring hope to this community and society. Sean, are you angry with South Africa? <laughs> not at all. I'm not angry with South Africa. I've never been angry with anyone. I'm angry with myself. That's what I would say, mm. because I would have loved to change the world. But as I usually say, the thinkers, those that have got ideas, they have no powers and they have no means. And this has encapsulated in the way when I saw this coming, I took a risk to go to my embassy. And I say, Mr. Ambassador, the second in command, this might be happening. We can prevent this by putting a mechanism where this mechanism will help salvage and save lives of human beings. Five people dead, that's far too many. So the anger would be with myself by saying, but this, you've got this brilliant idea, but how do you put it in place? But I would say also at the same time, there's hope as you ask me, because tonight as I'm speaking here, we have organized an event that is called Education for Peace, where we are trying to find how to bring social cohesion between the locals and the foreigners. And we had this a workshop through the academia, and I have forgotten the academia because I actually spoke with the academia and said, you need to come on board. Whatever curriculum you are teaching, it should reflect the issues of Africa, not being tailor-made from the programs that we got from the Western civilization because our way of living is different. So this was done in um, a collaboration with Lancaster University in the UK, another university in Turkey, and another university in Uganda, and UNISA. And we might have those programs in the heart of Yeovil, in the heart of the city, CBD, and in the heart of Soweto. I was in uh, Cariso a few days back to give a speech, but I couldn't because I was so scared. I was alone as a foreigner. And I said, wow, if they notice that I'm a foreigner, <laughs> they'll make my skin. So, But eventually I managed to come back and communicate with the people from there. So it is important now, the academia, the church, the politician, we need a synod, if I may say it in the religious term, where we come together and find a channel and a niche to appease people, to bring peace and to move forward. We cannot be lingering on the past every time. Do you think South Africa's reputation has got irreparable damage on the continent after what's happened here? Do you think South Africa's reputation can still be salvaged? Well, I believe in what they call uh, restorative justice and a second chance. I am who I am because I got given a second chance. So South Africa, like any other country in the world, must be given a second chance to what we call in French, redorer son blason d'argent, excuse me, I'm trying to find it in, in English, uh, to restore its image. It's a great country and it has got the means to stir up 
the entire continent toward development without being somebody who's boasting, here I am, I'm the second greatest economy, but rather bringing, sharing together. They've got what we call uh, development, they've got the infrastructure, they've got the knowledge, uh, they've got innovations. So how do we pull the rest of the continent so that together the citizens and the country we develop? So there's a way to salvage what has been destroyed. We haven't destroyed humanity, but we have hope, we have love that we can share. And in the Kemet language, we usually say, speak, act, and live righteously. And that's what I'm asking from the South African people. My last question, Jean, is how do you think your presence in South Africa, the work you're doing, is expanding the horizons of hope? Well, as an educator, I think that I've got a big role to play and most of my students, I always tell them that I don't teach for marks, I teach for life. So if we can promote life rather than promoting what is bad, then I think I'm doing my job as a human being to share joy. First of all, let's share joy. So I've been expanding in this. So I think that we're doing good and we still can bring the light into darkness for each and every individual in this world. Jean Boissa, thank you very much for your time and for your witness and for the work you're doing. It was good to be able to speak to you. Please comment and subscribe to our podcast for more candid conversations, passionate people and important issues. Expanding Horizons is produced by the Jesuit Institute South Africa with music and sound by Francis Tucson. This episode was presented by Russell Pollitt. Visit us at www.jesuitinstitute.org.za.